of that song. I pray that your heart has prepared room for him today. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for my helpers today. We got through that. All went well. Let's open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Today we're going to look at the miraculous birth of Jesus Christ and by his birth, God's design of bringing good news to the lowly. Luke chapter 2, we're going to look at a portion of the Lord's birth here in verses 6 through 14. Hear the words of God. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. And she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We give you honor and praise. We thank you that you condescended down from heaven, Emmanuel, God with us. Father, as we consider the great truths of your word in this miraculous birth, the God-man, the Savior of the world, Father, I pray that you would open up our hearts and minds to the truth, that you would fan the flames of our hearts for love for you and the work that you've done on our behalf. We pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, a couple years ago, I began noticing as this time of year, you hear Christmas songs a lot, and I started to notice in a lot of the Christmas songs that we sing, the line, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's in so many Christmas songs. And I think it was last year or a couple years ago, I got to really thinking about this as we sing peace on earth. And I got to thinking, peace, really? On earth? How, how can this be when we look around and we see anything but peace? We see evil growing and per, seem to be prevailing in the world. We see uh, tyranny growing. We see nations that are bloodthirsty to kill their preborn babies, to reject God. We see, we see nations and people hating everything that even hints of biblical truth. We see people mutilating children that they are birthing if they don't kill them in the womb. We're seeing forms of anarchy and defiance and the, the wholesale rejection of any authority. It seems like that every institution or everything that hints of the triune God is being attacked, destroyed, and being recreated with an evil ideology that is anti-Christ. Whether it's the family, whether it's the gender, the marriage, the government, the church, it's all being attacked, and it seems like it's all going down the drain if you pay any attention. So where is this piece of that we sing at each year? 
Where is this peace that we read of in the Bible? What peace can we possibly have living in the reality of this hellhole? Those who set their minds on things against God and his Christ here on earth seek to sell the world on a globalist peace, which is a counterfeit peace. This peace offers the utopian life that mankind desires, only this peace comes through by way of slavery to the state, by way of despotism, by way of a total eradication of the individual, of autonomous nations, and a total eradication of Christianity. The promise of a globalist utopia is straight from the pit of hell, but it appeals to so many people. It appeals to so many people, including professed Christians, because we long and we desire to have peace. So even professed Christians and even real Christians, they fall into the trap of believing the lies of this globalist type of peace by surrendering our God-given rights and God-given freedoms. Uh, We see this in Romans chapter 8, that not only mankind but earth as a whole uh, yearns and longs and desires peace. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 in verse 19, for the ancient, anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. He says, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. There's something within the whole world and within each of us that longs to be delivered from the corruption of this world that we see and we desire to live in peace. This, of course, is skewed by our sin and extremely corrupted by an unregenerate world seeking once again to build their own tower of Babel in defiance and rebellion towards God. But we long for peace. We long for peace both out there and right here in our hearts. And it can be quite discouraging when we look around and we see anything but peace. I'm reminded of this Christmas song, which I enjoy this time of year, called I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. Each stanza ends with, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And this song was written, was based on a poem in 1863 called Christmas Bells, and the American poet Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote this poem. Longfellow wrote this poem two years after he tragically lost his wife of 18 years in a house fire. And his son was enlisted in the Union Army to fight in the Civil War. His son was shot during the battle and returned home on December 8th. As Longfellow cared for his son to recovery on Christmas Day, 1863, he penned this famous poem. Here are some excerpts from it. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And they remember, right in the middle of this, is right in the middle of the Civil War, so listen to this next stanza. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south, and with the sound, 
the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, he wrote, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow penned the thoughts of many Christians during times of despair, peril, and chaos. And he echoes many Christians' thoughts, many of our thoughts even, during this Christmas season when we sing these great songs of peace, but we look around and see anything but. And isn't that how you can feel often? Can you relate to Longfellow? Although we may not be in an actual civil war, I think we can relate to his sentiments here. And how can there be peace with so much evil and turmoil? Well, here's where we need to go back to the Word of God, the all-sufficient, all-powerful, and inerrant Word of God. And we need to remind ourselves of the miraculous birth of Christ and the implications of Jesus' birth, and that's what we're going to look at uh, today. And the text that we're going to look at, as I read, reminds us of the implications of the birth of Christ, that through his birth and subsequent work on earth and his death, we have the promise of peace, both now in our hearts and minds, and a hope of peace to come in the future. But this peace is not for all, my friends, and you'll see that here in the text. But this peace is narrowly granted and given by God for only the lowly, only the poor in spirit, only the weak, and only the foolish things of the world. You see, it's been God's design from the beginning to set his special love upon the low, the base, the weak things of the world, to confound the wise of the world. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. Later on in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus applies the prophecy of Isaiah 61 to himself. You know, he goes into the synagogue and he opens up the book where they left off from the day before. He reads Isaiah 61 and he closes it and says, now this has been fulfilled in your hearing. And listen to what he says from Isaiah 61. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery to the sight of the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. When John the Baptist sent word when he was in prison, he was confused and he sent word to Jesus asking if he was the one that they had been waiting for or should they look for another. And Jesus gives them this message again from Isaiah 61. This is Luke 7, 22. He said, go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And we're not just talking about uh, monetarily poor. As Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, the downcast, the lowly, those who realize that they have nothing good to offer God. 
We see this truth revealed to us in the, in the gospel of Luke itself. The idea that God has a special love upon those who are low. And the birth narrative that Luke provides. In the gospel of Luke, he provides the most details of all the gospels of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, to give you some context will help us with our passage. Luke's primary audience when he wrote his gospel was to the non-Jewish world. And the general theme and focus of Luke's gospel is to show the Lord's compassion for outcasts, to show his compassion for the lowly, for the poor, to show his compassion for those who have been overlooked, those who are outside the religious elite. We see the themes prevalent as in Luke, God showing compassion to women who were uh, outcasted during that time, to Gentiles, uh, to Samaritans who were half Jewish and despised by the Jews. Uh, It shows his compassion for those who were sinners, those who were outcasted by the religious because of their sinful lifestyle. We see examples of his compassion to children in the Gospel of Luke, to tax collectors. And as we see here in the narrative of Jesus' birth, God is showing compassion again to the lowly. By the very way and the very means that he entered when he came down from heaven onto earth, the very way and the means that he did it show us that God has compassion for the lowly. We see this upon Elizabeth here in this account, who was barren. Elizabeth and Zechariah were old in age, and to be barren with no children in the Jewish community was shameful. It showed a displeasure from God. And we see that Elizabeth, in her praise, said that her disgrace had been taken away after she became pregnant with John the Baptist. Then we see Mary, uh, God's favor upon the lowly. Mary was a poor girl on the wrong side of the tracks. She didn't live in Jerusalem. She lived out in Nazareth. And that was sort of like a a lesser than for the Jewish uh, location. We see the theme of Mary's exaltation in Luke chapter 1, how God regards those who are humble, verse 48. He scatters the proud, verse 51. He brings down rulers off their thrones, Luke 1, verse 52. And he exalts the humble, in verse 52. And we see this truth shown to us in the details surrounding the birth of Christ. Consider the means by which Christ came into the world, friends. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who created the universe, the one who is before all things, and in him all things are held together. Think about the details around Christ's birth. He didn't come as he truly deserved. He didn't come... Uh, as a king born in a palace, but he came and was born in a lowly manger. But not only that, think about what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem to fulfill the prophecies. Uh, They had to have a census, you know that, and they had to travel from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. It was about a 70-mile trip, and kids, they had no cars, (laughs) so they had to walk, and it was a treacherous journey. Uh, 70 miles by foot, they had, not to mention Mary's, about eight to nine months pregnant. But they had to go. Then when they arrived, uh, it says in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger. Why? Because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke gives the reason why 
she gave birth in a, probably a cave. It was a feeding trough. It was where animals were housed because it says there was no room for them in the inn. Now, why wasn't there any room for them in the inn? So here's a little interesting historical context. When travel was made, travel wasn't made haphazardly. Uh, More than likely, arrangements were made ahead of time for where somebody was going to stay. And remember that Joseph was from Bethlehem. So presumably, he had family in Bethlehem, okay? And he goes there, and now it says that Jesus was born in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So there's a couple more things you can see there. It actually says the inn. There's a preposition in front of inn which inn is just a guest house. They had guest houses in their homes, and there's a participle in front of it. So it doesn't say that there was no room for them in any of the inns in Bethlehem. It said there were no room for them in the inn. So this is a bit of conjecture, but you can, you can think and imagine that they would have had arrangements made, and then when they got there, there was no room for them in the inn in the guest house that they were going to stay possibly because there was a lot of people coming into Bethlehem. But how cold do you have to be when you have relatives come in and the woman's in labor and there's no room for them in the guest house, right? So again, conjecture, but could they have heard of the scandal between Joseph and Mary? How uh, Mary was pregnant uh, before they consummated their marriage. It was a great scandal back then. Uh, It could have been. But again, it shows God's compassion to the lowly uh, with the birth here. But now imagine, they get to Bethlehem. They have no room for them. She's in labor. It's dark. They have no no one there to help them. Uh, They have no midwife like they would have back then. They have no support, and they don't even have any light. To them, there was no peace in their situation. And this is the very way that God chose to come down from heaven to indwell mankind through their suffering through their isolation through their rejection through their turmoil through their pain god would bring forth his son to bring peace to the world god had compassion and regard for the lowly mary and joseph we also see god showing compassion for the lowly in the way that he visited the shepherds, bringing the message of peace to them. So it says here uh, in verse 8, in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping uh, keeping watch over their flocks by night. Now shepherds in their day, in that day, were considered the very low end of the societal totem pole. At best, They were on the low end of things. At worst, they were absolutely despised by many. Even though the Jews' forefathers, many of them were shepherds. Uh, Abel was a shepherd. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all shepherds. Job was a shepherd. Moses, even their great king David was a shepherd. But during Jesus' day, they were considered the low end of society. Early rabbinic writings marked shepherds as inherently dishonest and unclean. One Jewish writer uh, during that time wrote that shepherds were, quote, mean and inglorious. Now, mean doesn't mean like angry. It means of low value, base, 
low. They were mean and inglorious. And they were often considered unclean and unfit uh, for temple worship. Uh, Coincidentally, these shepherds could have been the very shepherds that were tasked with raising the sheep that were used for temple worship in Jerusalem. Uh, Notice in verse 8 here, it says, In the same region there were shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Notice that the shepherds is in the plural and flock is in the singular. Okay, so this gives us a little hint of what's going on. The shepherds weren't watching their flocks, plural. The shepherds, plural, were watching their flock. Why is that important? Well, according to the Jewish Mishnah and some early church writings, there was a place about one mile east of Bethlehem called Migdal Adair, which means Tower of the Flock. This is where animals were raised uh, specifically for temple worship. So do you see the connection here? The very ones that were raising the sacrificial lambs that would be sacrificed in the temple were the very first ones to hear about the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. Now, this isn't far-fetched because it actually fits both the text in Luke, the, the region where these sheep, uh, shepherds will be watching the flock, and also it aligns with a prophecy in Micah. Turn there with me if you would. Micah chapter 4. Micah chapter 4, in verse 6, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts, even those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, that word in the Hebrew is the word that I mentioned earlier, migdal adair. So here it says, As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. So the kingdom will come to you, it says Migdal Adair, and it did when the angels announced the birth of their king. And then we see this similar prophecy in the next chapter, Micah 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And that, Micah 5, 2, is fulfilled. Matthew quotes it in Matthew 2, verse 6. So the first announcement of the Messiah... The very first proclamation that God came and became man was not to the religious elite. It was not to those who were at the highest status of the people. It was not to those who considered the most godly and righteous, but it came to the poor, to the lowly, to the despised, to the outcast. This shows that God's plan has always been to have compassion and to bring peace to the lowly, to bring the gospel of peace to the poor. Now look back at our text in verse 10. Well, verse 9, an angel of the Lord 
stood around them, and the glory of the Lord shone about, uh, around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. So when they, the angel says, I bring you good news, that is the word that we get evangelism for. So the angels are saying, I came to evangelize you, to give you great joy, it says, for all the people. But not only all the people, and that, in that sense it's true, Jesus came for all the people. But then look what it says in verse 11. The angel said, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you. Now they're talking to the angels. A Savior born for you, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What a message. What a message that Jesus came to save sinners in the abstract, yes, but if you're in Christ, Jesus came for you. Jesus was born for you. This is the message of the gospel, that Jesus was born for you. He lived for you and he died for you. And he did this not because he saw how great you were. He did this by his grace, because he chose to set his love upon you. And look, the angels say that a baby has been born, but not just any baby. Look what it says. It says a savior. Now that word is soter. It means deliverer. A savior has been born, one to redeem Israel, to forgive his people from their sins. And it says, who is Christ the Lord. This is Christos Kurios. Christ means the anointed one. And not only is Jesus born a savior, not only was he born the anointed one, but he was also born Lord. Look there in verse 11. A savior who is Christ the Lord. The Lord is Kurios in the original language. This means master. This means sovereign, uh, the sovereign. And see, this is where uh, the world gets Christmas all wrong. Uh, The world loves the baby Jesus, uh, but they don't want anything to do with the Jesus as a full man, as Lord, as master, as one who we all are to submit to. He's fine even all grown up as long as you keep him a man or a teacher or a weak and impotent being who is one of many options to live, the world's fine with that. The world will celebrate that as long as he's not exclusive and the only way and as long as he doesn't demand full allegiance. But this isn't the message. The message here is that Jesus is Christ the Lord. And if he is Lord, friends, if he is master, If he is creator, then he makes the rules, not you and I. Now, this one who is Lord and master is obligating the whole world to bow down and submit their allegiance to him and his word. Give that message in this culture, and now you're narrow-minded. Now you're a bigot. Now you're not progressive. You're old-fashioned. But this is the Jesus that we are to proclaim to the world, and this is the Jesus whom the angels proclaimed to the shepherds. Now, let's look briefly at the angels' praise. The angel 
the angels praise. Verse 13, and suddenly there appeared with an angel a multitude of heavenly hosts. This would have been thousands upon thousands of angels praising God. It's like, it's like the, the, the earth could not contain. God just came and became man. And the angels could do nothing but break out in praise. And so God allowed uh, the heavenlies to be peeled back and for the shepherds to see thousands upon thousands of angels breaking out in praise. And what is the first song that they sing about this newborn king? Verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. In other words, may all glory and honor be given to God who is the highest rank and peace on earth to whom he is pleased. Now your version may say, and in many of the songs, it says, peace on earth, goodwill to man. Uh, the actual word is one word. It means to will or to choose or to set desire upon. It's a noun, and it's in the genitive case, which I know that's technical, but it marks, it marks ownership, meaning the peace here among men is not just any men or woman. It's men of whom God wills, men of whom God is pleased. That's what the angels are saying here. They're not declaring peace for all individual men, but peace for men of whom God wills chooses and whom God is pleased to set his love upon. This is the peace that are for the recipients of God's grace by the transforming work of the gospel. And here's the key point, friends, that there's no peace without Christ and his gospel. Jesus himself said, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. Why, is, why do he say that? Well, before there could be peace, there has to be the spread of the gospel. And the gospel will divide. But it's only through this division can there be true peace. Jesus in the Beatitudes said, blessed are the peacemakers, uh, not peacekeepers. When you uh, try to keep the peace and don't give truth of God's uh, gospel and the salvation through Christ alone, yeah, you can have a superficial peace. But Jesus said, I did not come to uh, his first advent. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. That's because he came, he lived a life, and he came to give the gospel of there's only salvation through him and him alone. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no, no man can come to me, to the Father, but by me. So in order to have peace, we have to first come to the cross. Amen. Uh, the Jews were looking for an earthly king at the time to bring them freedom from the Roman rule and to establish peace among the Jews. They were looking for an earthly peace by coercion, by force, similar to the time period of David. That's what they were looking for. And Jesus did not come to do that during his first advent, but to divide with the truth of the gospel to the kingdom, to come to set the captives free, to bring the gospel to the poor, he says. Jesus came to bring us peace with God through reconciliation first and foremost. And it's only through the truth can there be true peace. There is no peace on this earth, friends, without Christ. 
And the Bible says that God is the God of peace. So friends, there's no peace. You will never have peace without God. And be sure of this. Jesus established his kingdom when he came during his first advent and brought it with it peace, which Isaiah 9, 6 says there will be no end to the increase of. So friends, are you following here with the, with the spread of the gospel? The only thing that can bring peace in your heart first and foremost is peace with God. And so the, through the proclamation of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel is how you bring peace upon the earth. Because the more people you convert to Christianity, the more there's true peace on earth. And rest assured, you can rest on this, although you do not see it now. God is bringing and he will bring peace on earth. That is a promise that he made in Isaiah 9, 6. He said the kingdom of his increase and the kingdom of peace, there will be no end. So you may not see it now. And no matter what your eschatology view is, is that there one, one day will be peace on earth because Jesus promised that in his word. So I want to conclude back to our poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Remember the context of him writing this poem. It was two years after the death of his wife. His son was shot during the Civil War, a war that was one of the bloodiest ever and the bloodiest in U.S. history. But his poem did not end in despair. His poem was like many of the Psalms of David. They start out in despair, but then the truths of God come to their heart, come to his heart, and they break out and stand upon the promises of God. Listen to how his poem ends. He understood that the peace of God ultimately wins. And this is the message we need to receive today from God is that we may not see peace out there, but there is a peace available to you. There's a peace available to me, but that only comes by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we advance the kingdom on earth, that's why we should be, we should, we shouldn't, we should be more motivated to advance the kingdom outside the four walls of the church, to bring peace to others, to bring peace on earth, which is only through Christ. So, <clears throat> excuse me, Longfellow understood the peace of God ultimately wins. Listen to what he says. Remember, he bowed his head in despair. There is no peace on earth, he said, right? It ends like this. He says, then pealed a rang, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. He says, God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Wadsworth here among the trials, the tragedy, he was able to look to the living God and stand firm on his beliefs, upon God's promises, that the wrong will fail and the right will prevail. And we not only have peace in our hearts from the God of peace through the person and work of Christ, but that we will see one day peace on earth. May these truths comfort you today, friends, during this season of Christmas, as, you, as we grow in our love for God, who took on flesh, who was born for you, for me, who lived a perfect life, suffered the wrath of God that we so deserve. 
He, was, he died, was buried, and on the third day rose again and ascended to heaven where he now sits upon his throne. He established his church, which he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want to remind you that he said the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Are gates in an offensive position or a defensive position? In a defensive position. So we need to not, oh, woe is me. Oh, woe are we. We need to attack the gates of hell with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that God is with us and God is using us to bring peace to others. Amen? You know, it would be a shame to celebrate the birth of our Savior during this Christmas time and not even know the person who you're celebrating. So I want to ask you by ending, do you know him? Do you know this one that we're celebrating today and tomorrow? I ask if you don't know him to repent of your sins and come to Christ and ask yourself, is Jesus my Savior and is he Christ my Lord. Is he your master? That's one way to know if you're born again, if you're in Christ. It may be imperfect, but do you have a, what's called a universal obedience to Jesus Christ? Meaning, is he your Lord and master to the point, whatever you say, Lord, if I am convinced in your word that it says to do this, I am gonna try with all my might to obey you. Is that your heart? That's one way to know if he is your Lord today. So I want to invite you as we celebrate that Jesus' birth, that he is not just a baby, but he is sitting upon his throne. And 1 Corinthians 15 says that he will sit there until he makes all his enemies under his feet. And he says the last one, the last one is death. He will put death under his feet. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sins, Lord, but that you came down from heaven. You dwelt among men. You came down in such a lowly estate, Lord, to bring many, many sons to glory. Lord, I thank you for your compassion upon those of a low estate, Lord. As the Apostle Paul says, to consider our calling, Lord, we were not, we were not wise. We were not so great. We thought we were. But I thank you, Lord, that you rescued me in my time of despair, in my time of darkness. Lord, I pray today if there's anyone here that's not walking in the peace of God, Lord, that you would do something special in their heart by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, if there's anyone today, Lord, or listening over the internet that um, has not come to you, Father, has not cast themselves wholly upon you and trusted themselves wholly upon you as Lord and Savior, that that they would do that today, that they would give up. Lord, I thank you for your free offer of the gospel. I thank you that you give us peace. And I thank you, Lord, that you will, you will have peace on earth one day. We thank you. We give you honor and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.